I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. I have been um, thinking about throughout the summer and praying about uh, what God would have us as a congregation study next. And uh, two things were kind of uh, running around in my mind. Uh, One of them was that it's probably time for some Old Testament studies. Uh, And uh, the other thing that was uh, running around was... um, something that would be relevant to the times in which we're living. And as I prayed over that and uh, came to uh, a sense from the Lord, I I always am looking for Him to speak to me about what He wants to speak to us about. Uh, I came to Daniel. And I was reading Daniel, and it just kind of settled in my spirit that Daniel is the book that we should be studying together for a season. And I want to take this morning to give you some information and background concerning Daniel so that uh, you have a bit of a handle on where he fits into Uh, the history of Israel and Judah in particular. Um, How many of you know when I say the divided kingdom, how many of you know what I'm talking about? Let me see your hand, okay? Somebody tell me what I'm talking about, (laughs) now that you've admitted to it. (laughs) Pardon? Northern and southern tribes, okay. And, And the northern tribes were known as... Israel and the southern tribes were, hey, wow, you guys are doing great. Okay, so uh, after David and Solomon left the scene, uh, Jeroboam, Rehoboam had a falling out. Uh, Things didn't go so well. Uh, Solomon had not always practiced all the wisdom he had. And, uh, you know, that happens sometimes. And so the northern tribes uh, kind of rebelled and withdrew from Jerusalem. And uh, ten of those tribes became the nation of Israel in the north. And in order to kind of bring an emotional and cultural separation from Judah so that there wouldn't be uh, a redrawing of them together... um, they began to worship other gods. They were the the first one of the two to really turn aside. And uh, it was the Assyrians in about 722 that overran them. And they're often referred to now as the Lost Tribes because they sort of got amalgamated into uh, Assyrian captivity and sort of lost track of. Uh, Some of them became the Samaritans over toward the west, but um, they were intermarried and intermingled, and the Jews of Judah were not fond of them. But in the southern kingdom, uh, Judah and Benjamin 
uh, remained faithful to the God of Israel. Uh, and in their worship, they sought to remain relatively pure. In the northern tribes, the sad thing is they never had a good king. From day one, they were off the mark. Whereas in the southern kingdom of Judah, they kind of bounce back and forth between good kings and bad kings. And what I mean by good and bad is the bad kings rebelled against God and went their own direction. And the good kings turned back to God and sought to bring the people back uh, in periods of revival. And so as a consequence of that, the southern kingdom lasted longer. God showed his favor to them because of these seasons and times of revival. But eventually they also fell away. And as a consequence of that, in uh, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar uh, besieged Jerusalem And although there had been other skirmishes and some people had been carried away, in 586 B.C., it was the major deportation as Jerusalem was conquered uh, and the people were led away captive into the Babylonian Empire. And throughout that whole 6th century, B.C. from 586 to 512. Remember, as you approach the zero date, uh, as you approach the uh, time of Christ, the numbers get smaller. So you start 586, and as time passes, you go to 512. Once we come to the year of our Lord the numbers begin to get bigger again, according to the Roman calendar. So we have uh, a change there. But Daniel wrote during that sixth century of the exile. And Daniel and Ezekiel were the only two exilic prophets They were the only two prophets that prophesied during the Babylonian captivity. Which is kind of very interesting. A lot of the minor prophets were before and many of them after the exile. And there were other prophets who were before, major prophets who were before the exile. Such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and his uh, small appendix, Lamentation. Uh, And yet when we come to Ezekiel and Daniel, these two men were chosen by God to speak his words to the Jews during the period of their exile. Now, Daniel wrote his prophetic message and narrative in two different languages. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Most of the Old Testament is Hebrew. But Daniel wrote in both Hebrew and Aramaic. And it has been hypothesized, and I, I think it makes kind of sense, 
that the portion that he wrote in Hebrew was a portion that the Jews would understand and relate to. But that portion that he wrote in Aramaic had to do with the nations of the world. And perhaps because he was writing in Babylon, and uh, who knows how far this prophecy was uh, spread in its various parts uh, at that time, he wanted them to clearly understand uh, God's revelation to him. So you have two different languages that are represented in Daniel, and uh, there may be some specific uh, significant phrases and words that we'll look at as we go along. Now, every once in a while, I, I write sort of a sentence, and then I go back and add something, and I forget to change the verb. <laughs> so I'm sort of a grammar Nazi, if that's okay to say. But anyway, um, in letter D, his authorship and time of writing are greatly contested by liberal scholars, which, and I want you to, to grab hold of this, because if you go to the web and you say, I wonder if Martin's lost his marbles, and if he's really telling us the truth, which is always a good thing to check out. Um, but if you go to the web and you look up Daniel, you're going to find all kinds of stuff. And uh, I'll tell you what, some of it is pretty far-fetched. Many liberal scholars... When I say liberal, they come out of the German higher critical schools and and other viewpoints that basically tear the scriptures apart and turn them into a largely human book. And they use a critical approach to analyze it and they come up with all kinds of crazy things. And um, if you look at the literature on the web... There's all kinds of fallacies. I read a number of articles from the web and not one of them was accurate. Now, if you go to a conservative Bible site, yes, you're going to find better material. But if you just uh, look up Wikipedia, for example, uh, it's almost laughable. Um they go from the idea that it was a late pseudonymous author in the post-Maccabean period. How many of you know what the Maccabees are? Ah, fewer hands. <laughs> okay. The Maccabean period was between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ. It was a period of time about... Eh, 200 to uh, 125 or so BC. And uh, they were a group uh, within the southern kingdom that um, they weren't really fond of Rome, among other things. And so some people say, well, this was a book that was a pseudonym. Daniel didn't write it, but somebody else wrote it, and they borrowed Daniel's name, and they wrote it uh, to be an encouragement 
uh, to those that were needing to be sort of uplifted uh, before um, in their fight uh, for um, freedom and worship and so forth. To some articles that say Daniel is an entirely fictitious character and he never existed at all. And so you have this broad spectrum of fallacies that uh, liberal scholarship tries to apply to this book. And essentially what it does is, first of all, it reduces the book to a fraud. If it's a, if it's a pseudonymous book, an author writing under a pseudonym, namely Daniel, well, that's not true. You know, if the scripture says, I, Paul, am writing to you Corinthians, and Paul didn't write it, it's a lie. Sometimes liberals uh, want their cake and they want to eat it too. Uh, The more conservative ones would like to preserve the value of the lessons and, and so forth within a book while denying the authenticity of the the writing of the book itself. And to say that some character a hundred or two hundred years before Christ wrote the book of Daniel under Daniel's assumed name and put it out there as a means of encouragement well, what kind of encouragement is that? The, the book starts out as a lie. And it, it has the fallacy already built into it. What good is the encouragement? It's coming from someone who wasn't truthful. And uh, they'd like us to believe, well, that was just kind of a method of writing. Uh, kind of like we write fiction uh, under uh, assumed names, you know, a person, author may take an, a name to publish his fiction under. Well, that's kind of what it turns into, is fiction. And so it destroys, it reduces the book to a fraud, and it destroys the prophetic message, which is intended for all times. What are the characteristics of a true prophet of God. One is his character. And the other is his accuracy. And God says, if, if it's my words in the mouth of the prophet, they will come true and it will be exactly as he says it is. And that's how you'll know it's my prophet. But if what he says, if all of what he says does not come true, then you'll know that it's he is not a prophet of mine. So if you destroy the prophetic message, if you destroy the book, you destroy the prophetic message. And Daniel is a fascinating book describing for us the development of the kingdoms of the world all the way to the return of Jesus Christ.
this is a very important book, and uh, somewhere in the outline here it says it is a companion volume to Revelation. These two books go together, and they outline for us what the future is going to be like and what he has in store, uh, what God has in store for the church. So, Jesus accepted Daniel as canonical. In other words, it belongs in the writings of the Old Testament. It has a place there. And he is opposed to the idea that Daniel was just making stuff up. He alluded to himself from Daniel's prophecy. There was no question in the time of Christ as to Daniel's authenticity. Jesus quotes directly from him in uh, Matthew in that uh, passage of Scripture, prophetic about the future. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, and you have the Lord Jesus attributing the future near the end to a prophecy which he says was spoken by Daniel the prophet. As far as I'm concerned, you can't get any more credibility than that. When Jesus validates the word, it's absolutely true. Um, there are five additional allusions, and by that I mean kind of veiled references to Daniel in the New Testament that are spoken of as truth. And so even in the New Testament, we have quotations or allusions to Daniel's prophecies that Jesus himself endorsed. And um, when we consider all of that, you and I can have confidence that the book of Daniel is a book that Daniel wrote, a prophet of God who was chosen by God during the Babylonian captivity to give us information. Now I want to talk about what we're going to find as we study the book of Daniel for a little bit. Uh, first of all, in the narrative and prophecies of Daniel, Daniel tells us a story of what captivity was like for young men with potential and how the kingdom was organized in Babylon. If you read the book closely, um, you find not only specific Hebrew young people mentioned, but as the book develops, you find out various offices and roles that they held. For example, the kingdom of Babylon under the king was divided into uh, three uh, different uh, branches of government and leadership, and Daniel was in charge of one of those. So he was next to the king in an order of authority that was um, 
very significant in Babylon. And uh, the others, as we find out, were quite jealous of him. Uh, Daniel and his three friends figure prominently in the book, along with the kings that he served. So when you look at the book, Daniel is obviously the main character, but the um, new names, the given names that uh, every uh, child learns in Sunday school, I hope, uh, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, or Abednego, as some people <laughs> somehow I don't know how that got started, but um, Abednego was the third one, and they um, they figure into the book in strategic moments. We find them in the opening of this book in the first drama over what they're going to eat. And um, to give you a little background, when the Babylonians, and they weren't the only kingdom that did this, but when the Babylonians would capture a people, they would first of all, transport them to some other place in their kingdom. That served to unsettle them and mix them up and make it more difficult for them to rebel and uh, raise a local army and cause grief. So uh, that was one of the first things they did. Then they also took some of those people uh, in whom they saw wisdom and potential and uh, greatness uh, that they could train, young people who were not already set in their ways, and they would bring them into the king's court and begin to train them and develop them, because how else do you gain the support of people that you've captured? Well, it's a pretty good move to take some of their own uh, young people who are rising stars and make them leaders within the kingdom. And it's like, oh, I got my man Daniel. He's uh, one of the three key people in Babylon. And we can approach Daniel because, well, he's like I am. So that was kind of a wise move. And they would take these young people and they would begin to groom them according to the king's um, training and declaration and he would assign to his uh, teachers and wise men how to prepare these young people to be leaders uh, within his kingdom. And so the first drama that we run into has to do, oddly enough, with food. Now, this is an amazing thing. I mean, you know, they, they bring them in and they say, okay, here, here's your evening uh, dish. Uh, you're going to have, um, what's the steak I'm looking for? Prime, uh, not prime rib, uh, come on, help me out. Ribeye. I knew it had something to do with a rib. You're going to get prime rib every other night and sirloin on the alternate nights. And you're going to have the finest vegetables of the land prepared by the finest chefs. They're going to have all kinds of cheese and cream sauces and, and all the good stuff. You're going to get the best wine in the kingdom. Uh, we're going to give you the finest desserts. We want you to eat just like the king eats. 
And Daniel and his buddies looked at that and said, Oh, no. (laughs) This is going to kill us. We can't do this. And so they go and they say, "Can, Can we have a different diet? We just like vegetables and water. And, and and these guys are kind of scratching their heads saying, you want vegetables and water? What's wrong with you? We're offering you uh, the finest steaks. Well, that's not what we need. <laughs> we need vegetables and water. And I feel so sorry for the guy that was in charge of them. He says, look, if I do that, you're going to be skinny and scrawny, and uh, when you come and stand before uh, the person in charge of all the training and they see how emaciated you are, I'm going to lose my head. The king is going to order me beheaded, and, and we're all going to be in trouble. And they say, okay, look, we'll make a deal with you. Give us ten days, just ten days. And then check us out compared to the other youths. And so he says, well, that's reasonable. I can, I can do that. Remember, they're trying to cater and be somewhat careful with the religious values of their captors, uh, of their captives. And so they provide fresh vegetables and water. And what do you think happens in 10 days? Well, you know the story. They are healthy. Their color's good. They've put on some weight. I don't know how you do that eating veggies, but they did. You put on some weight, and uh, and they look better than anybody else. And <laughs> he says, well, obviously this is a pretty good diet for you guys, so we're going to let you keep it up. You know, it's amazing what that diet will do. Besides filling your arteries with all those sluggish fats and creams and stuff like that, that will ultimately dull your brain. Did I say that? I did. They had all of the benefit of the very best nutrients to be sharp and muscular and energetic and it was just like these guys are outstanding Uh, and so um, there's the story of what happens with these three as they serve the kings the major narratives of the book tell the stories of remaining faithful in a hostile environment. The prophecies, as opposed to the narratives, now when I say narratives, I'm talking about, uh, I don't want to call them stories, because that implies they're not true. They are true. The, The historical events, the narratives, have to do with Daniel and his buddies and the kings. But the prophecies are standalone units. And Daniel is either interpreting the unusual dreams of the kings, or he is experiencing dreams and visions of his own that trouble him and cause him to seek the Lord for understanding. 
So as we go through Daniel, uh, we're going to be noting the, the valid points that come out of their lifestyle in a hostile environment. But we're also going to be uh, focusing on these prophecies because they're going to give us an indication as to how the kingdoms of the world are going to pan out, mostly. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a little different personal prophecy, and that doesn't go so well for him initially. But uh, we'll be looking at how the kingdoms of the world pan out. And this is one of the reasons why Daniel is so very important. Because if you read Daniel and you put it next to your newspaper and your history books, you can say, wow, this is God's pre-written history. Letting his people know what's going to happen. You know, when Jesus says that his coming will be like a thief in the night, and uh, he also mentions ten virgins, five who are wise and five who are foolish, who are preparing for a wedding feast. And uh, five of them don't bring enough oil, and five do. And Jesus says, see to it that this does not overtake you by surprise. God has given his people an understanding of the approximate time of his coming. We have some indications. We are not intended to be caught totally flat-footed and off guard. We are intended through the scriptures to look at the development of history and current events and have a sense of where things are headed. And this actually should be of great encouragement to us. Because we've read the last chapter. And we know how the story ends. Isn't that neat? And Daniel fits right into that. So, why is Daniel an important book for us to study? Well, I just... Uh, gave you a hint, but the lives and choices of Daniel and his friends inspire courage and faith in difficult circumstances. There's much to learn. Personal care, prayer life, and habits. Daniel teaches us volumes about prayer and about daily walking with God. You know, we've been studying the the significance of being filled with the Spirit. And I can't tell you that Daniel was filled with the Spirit. We know from John uh, 14 that that is waiting for the atonement, literally by Jesus on the cross. But the Spirit of God would come upon God's prophets. And Daniel was a man upon whom the Spirit of God rested. And his prayer life and his habits are much to be uh, studied. 
and he was faithful to God while serving unbelieving pagan leaders. You know, there's two ways to deal with an ungodly boss, an ungodly politician, a a pagan leader. You can shake your fist and rebel and kick and stomp and mouth off and get nowhere. Or you can do everything you can to be supportive and helpful in whatever way that you can without violating your conscience. But there are many, many things you can do to to make a person's life easier even if they're an unbeliever. And if you do that, you will find favor and blessing and they will kind of warm up to you in many cases. And so how do you deal with life under pagan leadership? Well, you've got two choices. You can kick and scream and mouth off all the time. Or you can pray for those in authority. You can do your best to be a good citizen. You can uh, live for God in a way that is a blessing to unbelievers. And who knows but what you won't influence them for Christ. Who knows? It is a prophetic book for our times and a companion to Revelation. Daniel's prophecies and dream interpretations give us confidence in our own future. His prophecies assure us of the coming reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And he gives us insight into our future in the kingdom, which is found nowhere else in Scripture. We're going to discover as we study Daniel that there are some things that Daniel tells us about our destiny as believers that nowhere else is it mentioned in Scripture. And yet it gives us insight into the roles that we'll play. I think some of the keenest uh, insight into our roles in the Millennial Kingdom are found in Daniel. And so we're going to learn a lot from Daniel about what God has destined us to be when Jesus comes back to reign and rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I want to ask you that you would um, encourage us and inspire us as we contemplate the study of Daniel. That it would be an exciting prophecy for us to spend time in your presence um, seeking to understand and to uh, apply and interpret. Lord, teach us and make us wise uh, men and women who have a better understanding of where this world is headed and our role in it because we have studied this fascinating book. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.